can I say what a delight it's been this weekend? I was just sharing in the group, there's been lots, actually, that's just from being amongst you, which has been very encouraging and challenging for us, and uh, especially seeing what the gospel, what truth and love in a community can be with however many decades uh, to flourish. And it's given us, well, for, for me, great um, uh, vision for what uh, could happen at Grace Church. We're only babies, three years old, but we'd love um, to see what is happening here uh, increasingly in our church. Um, and I think, just be, just be encouraged, it's, it's a wonderful uh, thing that you've got here. And um, yeah, do be thankful. Um, on that note, wasn't it wonderful already today how much we've benefited from the children amongst us? I, I wanted to head out with them and, and learn <laughs> with them, as I'm sure you did. I'm sorry you've got to stay here. But, you know, Chris and I's experience as well is just, you know, the, the children are not tomorrow's church. They are the church. And uh, what a privilege to be learning from them uh, what they have to offer. Um, just to kind of recap where we've got to, especially I know not all of us have been able to be here the whole Weekend. So we've been thinking about this book of Ecclesiastes that the author Solomon, he wants us to really be realistic. He presses our noses in just how broken this world is. We all know it's a bit broken, but we do, do we actually believe it? Do, do we believe that there really is futility? We are building sandcastles, um, not uh, plywood. You know, we think we can make some lasting um, impact. And he says, no, just get real. Um, it's, it's sandcastles. And then he says, but that isn't a reason for believers to be depressed and despairing. Actually, even in this truly broken world, that we are those who can live positively. Thankfully, we live in an arena of grace. We have a father who we relate to. Everything we do uh, can be done in relationship with him. Um, And we saw that poem, didn't we? Life uh, is out of control, it's unproductive, it hits us uh, seemingly randomly, and yet even through, as we experience life like we experience that poem, we know there's a Lord of time, and we know that even though we can't see the big picture, he does, and so we can respond to him with joy and uh, trust. And we've just looked uh, yesterday afternoon... Um, about how when particular struggles and pain come into our lives, we're not to be like the world around us of, of escapism and denial, pretending that the, the darker side of life isn't there, uh, but we're to lean into the hard times and let them teach us um, so that we can grow in a patient spirit, which is so precious and will one day be rewarded. So that's where we've got to. Um, I'm, as I mentioned, we're, we're not going to be able to cover the whole book, and we've skipped now right to the end of the book. The bit we John just read was the final verses of the whole book. Um, just to uh, be aware, because I'm going to refer to verses, there's a new chapter in the second paragraph. So where it says 12 isn't verse 12, that will throw you. It's chapter 12, verse 1. That will help you when I refer to verses. And in this um, new Uh, section that we're looking at, the bit we've skipped over has had a lot of the same themes about the brokenness of this world, but it's particularly been emphasising not just that the world is painful, but especially the challenge of living in a world that is chaotic. 
uh, a world which seems to be random. Uh, We assume, don't we, that in a well-governed universe that bad stuff happens to bad people and vice versa. It's a very neat idea. Uh, That's the idea of karma. And then we actually live in the world and we discover it doesn't really work like that. Very often the opposite happens. The longer we've lived, the longer we'll have noticed that bad stuff happens to the best people and vice versa. And this is what Solomon has been grappling with uh, through chapter 8 and chapter 9. You haven't got it on the sheets, but chapter 8, 14 is a good summary. He says, There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And he's just saying, look, if you look at life, it is a mess. It, it really is a jungle out there. And actually, on the face of it, if all you have to go on is your natural eyes, then there's little to suggest that the universe is well-governed at all. Um, you'll be able to fill in your own examples. But even in the last year, I've heard about two mothers of school-aged children, uh, one a relative, one a friend of the family, who have been diagnosed with cancer, and for one of whom, at least, with no prospect of recovery. It just seems arbitrary, and we'll be able to multiply examples. And Solomon knows that one of the ways we tend to respond if we are in the thick of it, and we're living in what seems like a chaotic world, is that we do this. Uh, We start to live defensively. Uh, We start to live cautiously. We start to live anxiously. So yes, there are things in life that we could throw ourselves into, Uh, Perhaps there are opportunities, dreams, ambitions, areas of service, relationships, but it never quite seems the right time. And after all, the priority has to be, if life is about being defensive, it has to be getting that qualification, securing that job, getting the financial security, doing whatever it is which we think will shield us against whatever might be coming just over the horizon. And Solomon's message throughout this book has been not simply to be realistic about this life and to say, yes, this world does seem chaotic, it, it, does, it really is fallen, but he also wants us to see how knowing God helps us to live wisely and crucially it helps us to live positively in the midst of the chaos. This is actually quite similar to the verses that uh, the children have been learning about, not to be... Um, Uh, hampered by the chaos, the world around us goes after these things, but to be freed uh, to live positively and all out. Um, And in these verses, in in this this section, the final verses of the book, he's going to show us how to live joyfully and reverently in the midst of the chaos. And first he calls us to, uh, also on your sheets, live joyfully now, precisely because Life is fleeting, it's temporary, it's insecure. Now that, those two halves may not match. We might not think life is temporary, insecure, live positively. But he's going to argue that now, that that is a reason to live joyfully. So let's get into the verses. Light is sweet, verse 7, that's how we began. And it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. And it is. So... If a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. If we've been in Ecclesiastes for three talks, starting to get the feel. Live joyfully. This is a good world that God has made. 
Uh, and as we've seen before, the the impact the um, the message of Solomon is enjoy life. It's carpe diem, as the Latin speakers amongst us, I'm sure, say often. It seize the day, live large. Um, the film um, Dead Poet Society has a famous scene uh, where the school teacher, played by the late Robin Williams, says to the boys, carpe diem, seize the day, gentlemen. And then he says, believe it or not, each and every one of us in this room is one day going to stop breathing, turn cold and die. And if you've seen the film, then he invites all the, the school children to examine the faces from the faded black and white team photos in the school corridor. And he says this, you see, gentlemen, these boys are now fertilising daffodils. But if you listen closely, you can hear them whisper their legacy to you. Do you hear it? Carpe diem, seize the day, boys. Now, uh, in our church in Greenwich, we have a good uh, sizable um, component of our congregation is students. And I discovered um, when sharing this illustration that not many of the people had been born uh, when this <laughs> film came out. 30, nearly 30 years ago, 1989. Um, anyway, for some of us, that will make us feel quite old. Um, but I believe if that, all of that means nothing to you, there is a modern translation of Carpe Diem. And actually, if you are in that age bracket, particularly if you're under 20, can you translate what is... Can someone call out? What is a modern translation of Carpe Diem? Thank you. You only live once. So, so I know there's different generations here, but whichever communicates to you, that is, I think, a good summary of verses 7 to 9. It's life is short, death is coming, you only live once, so carpe diem, make the most of it. And listen out. You might be thinking, really, in the Bible? But look at the verses. Look at this logic. Let's read from verse 8. So, if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vapour. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vapour. Uh, incidentally, you've noticed I say vapour, don't I? Uh, or instead of vanity and, and if you weren't here yesterday you'll wonder why I'm doing that uh, we mentioned in the first talk that the, the word that gets translated in this translation vanity in, in NIV it's meaninglessness hebel literally means do you remember this mist vapour and this is really going to test you now but if anyone was in the first talk can you remember I think there's basically two connected ideas Behind this word. Do you remember? Can anyone remember one of them? Transience. Transience, exactly. So, just like mist uh, is fleeting or temporary, you know, by lunchtime, uh, morning mist is gone. So, when we read this word, we, we, it can mean something is, doesn't last. And there was one other meaning it could mean? Yeah, can't, can't grasp it. Yeah, hard to understand. We can't, we can't get hold of it. And actually, I think verse 10 here is a great example of how it cannot mean, as some 
people insist that it always means meaninglessness or vanity. Because Solomon's just been saying, if you follow the logic, how precious youth is, hasn't he? Not how pointless it is. And now the point in verse 10 is that youth and the dawn of life, not that they are meaningless, his point is that they are fleeting. They just don't last. So Solomon is teaching here, uh, youth doesn't last, carpe diem, you only live once. But I guess some of us may have red lights flashing, especially if you've been a Christian for a while and um, you know other parts of the Bible already, you're thinking, what about that, what about that? Uh, And we're thinking, hang on, he let this guy in. Isn't this the slogan of the hedonist, isn't it? Live for now, live indulgently today without any regard for the consequences. These are the people... Uh, you know, who, who are all over the internet that we try and protect our children from. And surely the Christian, by contrast, is to live with their focus on the world to come, we say. Um, I recently watched the film uh, The Bucket List. I, if I mention a film, it doesn't mean I recommend it. Um, it's not a great film. The Morgan Freeman character gets told that he's dying. And what does he do? He immediately leaves his wife. Uh, and he leaves his family and he heads off around the world, ticking off his various dreams and ambitions. And we're thinking, surely that kind of selfish hedonism cannot be what Solomon is calling us to. Surely. Be relieved, he's not. Uh, and actually, when we read here, I mean, verse 9 is blatant, isn't it? When, when Solomon teaches the young man, walk in the ways of your heart, this is verse 9, Imagine saying this to a teenager. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. Some of us us are thinking that is the opposite of the advice you give to the young person. uh, You're meant to say to young people, listen, the ways of your heart are wicked. Whatever you do, find out what those ways are and walk the other way. (laughs) Uh, That's basically what we think. Now, I hear all that. Um, But Solomon is talking to his son. We see that, chapter 12, verse 12. Someone he already assumes fears the Lord. Uh, Someone who's already justified. If you look at chapter 9, verse 7, that's implied there. So his advice in verse 9 is a bit like, uh, if you know the bit in the Bible, when the prophet Nathan says to King David, this is 2 Samuel 3, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. He's saying it to a believer. And he says, yes, that's a good thing. And Solomon's saying, look, if you are someone who fears the Lord, hopefully some of the things in your heart are going to be good things, often. Maybe as you see that sports team to join, or that property to develop, or that godly girl to get to know, or maybe those things are excellent things that you should be pursuing. And if there's a a course you want to study, go and do it. If there's a knitting pattern you want to master... Go and do it. If there's an area of ministry you want to pursue, go for it. But, verse 9, know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Don't do those things like some foolish idolater who thinks they can get ultimate gain from them. Don't do them like a a fool who thinks they're going to get ultimate security or ultimate satisfaction. I mean, that would be a stupid way to live. No, but do it as a creature. Do it as a believer. Do it as someone who is dependent on God, seeing each part of our lives as a chance to love God and know him better. So yes, do that 
anthropology course, but do every lecture delighting in God and delighting in the complexity and beauty of the people he's made. Knit the new pattern, but as you do it, produce every stitch in a spirit of thankfulness. Get stuck into that ministry, but do it in dependence on God and consciously for his glory, not your own. And supremely, verse 9, do it all looking to his well done on the day of judgment. Keep that day in mind in everything you do. It's actually a little bit like the advice, isn't it, that Paul gives to the slaves in Colossians 3. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Whatever we do, very similar to what Solomon's saying, do it wholeheartedly and do it consciously looking forward to the final day and the Lord's judgment and reward of his people. Um, actually, because it was the um, 500th anniversary, did people note this, of the Reformation last year? Um, at Grace Church, we did a Heroes of the Reformation series over that summer, and one of the people we looked at was Martin Luther, 16th century German reformer. When I meet Germans in London now, first thing I say is, I'm so thankful to your people. You have given the world Martin Luther, and we are all very glad of it. Um, hero of the faith. And he was someone who understood well the Bible's teaching about the importance of enjoying God's gifts today. And I'm going to read an extract. It's, it's a letter uh, Martin Luther wrote to Prince Joachim of Anhalt. Uh, in 1534. It's a great letter, and it goes like this. I should like to encourage your grace, who are a young man, always to be joyful. You can see the connection. To engage in riding and hunting, and to seek the company of others who may be able to rejoice with your grace in a godly and honourable way. No one realises how much harm it does a young person to avoid pleasure and cultivate solitude and sadness. Your grace has Master Nicholas Hausman and many others near at hand. Be merry with them. It's very similar to verse 9 here. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. And then Luther gives his rationale. For, Luther says, for gladness and good cheer, when decent and proper, are the best medicine for a young person, indeed for all people. I myself, who have spent a good part of my life in sorrow and gloom, if you know Luther's history, he was a monk, didn't have a great first half of his life, uh, I now seek and find joy wherever I can. Praise God, we now have sufficient understanding of the word of God to be able to rejoice with a good conscience and to use God's gifts with thanksgiving. For he created them for this purpose, and is pleased when we use them. In fact, that last line, you might, if, if you know the, the passage, you can hear an echo of Paul's words to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4. Everything but created by God is good. Nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. So that's the message here. And then the following verses, this is the, the poem in chapter 12, 1 to 8, beautiful poem. It's all about ageing. This poem is here to give us even more motivation to live joyfully now, precisely because life is fleeting 
and insecure and were only young once. Let's get into this poem. Um, It's very evocative. Remember also your creator, verse 1. That's the one who created this world full of good things to enjoy. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. So Solomon here in verse 1, he's, he's warning us uh, not to keep putting off living life until some later date in the future. There will never be a day in this life when I can hear and see and exercise as well as I can today. We mentioned this yesterday, didn't we? And he's saying, look, don't put things off. Make the most of today. Look at verse 2. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. I think this is still talking about the end of a person's life, but it's using imagery here about the end of the world, kind of apocalyptic language. And it's saying that every person's death is in some sense like the end of creation as they experience what it is to be unmade. And the verses then continue to describe the end of a person's life. But next they switch to the imagery, not of the end of the world, but to a deteriorating old village. So let's keep going. Verse 3. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble. Some people say that's probably the arms. Uh, And the strong men are bent. Probably the legs. And the grinders cease because they are few. What do you think that is? teeth dropping out and those who look through the windows are dimmed probably eyesight failing and the doors on the street are shut not sure about this but some people say perhaps the mouth caving in because the teeth have just dropped out when the sound of the grinding is low and when one rises up at the sound of a bird you know how old people can often be light sleepers and all the daughters of song are brought low all the music's gone They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. Anxieties grow even about normal things in old age sometimes. Uh, The almond tree blossoms. I'm told that's probably grey hair. Uh, The grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails. That's a euphemism. Uh, Sexual ability and desire starting to diminish. Because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets. This is interesting. The poem assumes that death is starting to break in and and interrupt life even before it finally takes us. Did you notice? It's present uh, around us. And then finally it comes. Verse 6. Before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken. Or the pitcher that the bucket is shattered at the fountain. Or the wheel broken at the cistern. And the dust returns to the earth as it was. And the spirit returns to God who gave it. You get the imagery that the final irreversible moment when the vessels break and the liquid leaks away. It's gone forever. And it's a picture of that moment when the body finally breaks down. And the spirit returns to God. Notice, and we've seen this throughout the book, um, 
Solomon was not unaware of God or about judgment. We've even seen in this passage again, he's aware of judgment. He's not an unbeliever. Verse 8. Vapour of vapours. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vapour. It's all fleeting. It's all temperate. And all this is given to us, do you remember, to send the message home as loudly and clearly as possible that we are to live joyfully now. That's the point of the poem. It's there to say uh, precisely because life is fleeting, precisely because ageing and death is unavoidable, we'll get living now. I think back today about some of the gifts we've enjoyed. Uh, many of us have enjoyed working legs, for example. Uh, perhaps, I guess nearly all of us have had a fry-up. We've had incredible, good-tasting food. Uh, perhaps we've seen people we love today. Uh, perhaps we've been able to show kindness or care to someone who needed it. What a privilege that is. One day we will look back on today, I mentioned this yesterday, it's one of the take-homes for me in Ecclesiastes. We, I guess, will look back and say, do you remember those days, you know, at the beginning of the 21st century when we were only in our whatever decade, those were the days. Do you remember London, Hampstead, do you remember those weekends away? And one of the take-homes for all of us, I think, should be to try and develop this habit day by day of saying to ourselves, we're in it now. These are the days. We're living it. This is it. Don't wish these days away. Value them. Give thanks to them. Remember they're a gift. Actually, I think this um, teaching from Ecclesiastes uh, maybe a very useful corrective for some of us. I don't know who, if there'll be some of us here who, who sometimes feel guilty whenever we enjoy God's good gifts in this world. Um, perhaps we have rightly understood the urgency of the gospel. We, we do know, we've discovered from the Bible, nothing matters more than for people to be in right relationship with God before the judgment day. That is true, that is vital. And yet it's possible for us to take that truth and then kind of tear out all the other bits of God's revelation and to twist one truth into a kind of unbiblical reductionism. The sort of reductionism which says all that counts, the only thing that matters ever, is evangelism. And maybe you've heard this rhetoric that anything else is just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Have you heard that? Actually, that is, uh, that is a kind of unbiblical reductionism. It's, it, it tends to actually dehumanise us. It makes us devalue our created physicality. We start treating food as if it's just fuel to get us onto the next evangelistic event. Uh, when actually food is about fellowship. Uh, it, it means that marriage becomes either just a distraction or possibly a means of evangelistic efficiency or something frightening like that. Imagine someone proposing on those terms. Um, our work then becomes merely a place to earn money for Christian mission. Of course it is that, but it, o- it becomes only that. Friendships just become functional and mercenary. Um, you are useful for me for this end. <coughs> 
And Ecclesiastes, I think, is a helpful corrective, if that's the way we're thinking. And it helps to remind us that in saving us, God is not pulling us out of being human. He is restoring us to our created humanity, the way we were meant to be as human beings. In fact, given that the serpent's lie, right back in Genesis 3, was that God is mean-spirited and harsh... Our job as believers is not to try and reinforce that lie. Not to try and give the impression that God, yes, he made this wonderful world, but he's done it so that he can then forbid his creatures from enjoying it. Now, our job is to be the people we are created to be, to live thankful, joyful lives, which point upwards to our creator's goodness and generosity, because we live lives which are always thankful. And it's precisely because Solomon's message is so radical, and it is something that um, uh, is part of God's revelation, but it's not on every page, and we need Ecclesiastes in our Bible. It's because it's so radical, not just to those who, who are given to a reductionist view of life, but to all kinds of people who think that this sounds unspiritual. Um, I think that's the reason we get this necessary sales pitch at the end of the book. So this is a kind of interlude, or it's a kind of point, the necessary sales pitch. And these last few verses are not written by Solomon. You might have noticed that as we got onto this new section, besides being wise, the preacher. So this is kind of topping and tailing the book. It's now a different voice by an editor or a publisher. Uh, some people think it's a different voice at the end because it's saying an opposite thing. I don't take that view. I think that many of the, in fact, all the things he now says in his summary at the end are stuff that he's already, uh, that's already been covered. He's reinforcing or summarising what's gone before, not correcting it. Anyway, uh, for example, the reality of judgment we've already had, haven't we, in 11 verse 9 and so on. Anyway, this is his blurb. Verses 9 to 14 are a little bit like um, the blurb on the back of a book. I put a German book up because I know, I know your game and I know that you'll start reading whatever it is behind me. And so I thought if it's in German, at least the number of people who are going to read it is going to be fewer. Anyway, <laughs> the blurb on this book is to convince us that it's worth our while heeding the book's message because we might be inclined to pass over the book. And so we need to listen in. Look at verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. It's a really positive review, isn't it? Uh, so I know Ecclesiastes is a challenging book. Um, personally, I've been sometimes struggling for ages with how each verse follows on from the last verse. The temptation in that situation is just, oh, it doesn't seem to make sense this bit. It seems random. It seems miscellaneous. And actually, coming back to this verse, verse 9, has been an encouragement for me to keep grappling. Because we're told specifically, it's all been carefully arranged, chosen with care. So work hard at it. Verse 10. The preacher sought to find words of delight. And uprightly, he wrote words of truth. We're told specifically, this is good stuff. The words of the wise are like goads. And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. 
My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. That is a glowing five-star review, isn't it? Ecclesiastes, it apparently we discover here, is not just beautifully written. We're told it's completely reliable in its message, verse 10. And that is because the message comes from God himself, the great shepherd of the sheep, verse 11. And that is why, verse 12, it's all we need. We don't need to add a sequel. Um, That word goads in verse 11, um, you might know they're the sharp spikes on a shepherd's stick for prodding sheep who are wandering off in the wrong direction. So he he acknowledges some of this is going to be uncomfortable teaching, like being prodded with a goad. But remember, it's supremely precious because it's how God keeps his sheep on track. It's actually this paragraph which explains the approach we've been taking to the book this weekend. Um, uh, Lots of commentaries, maybe you've heard preaching series that say something like, um, poor Solomon, if only he knew what we know uh, about eternal life, then he wouldn't be quite so depressed. Well, at least he shows how meaningless life is without God in the picture. And then we shut the book and give thanks that we can now read the New Testament. Because the assumption is that uh, Ecclesiastes is sub-Christian. And I think if, if that's your view, it's worth considering for a moment why this book needs this sales pitch at the end. I can't actually think of any other Bible book which has something quite like this to, to reinforce and to assure us that this is a, a reliable book. Because I, the assumption, I guess, is that we're, we're going to be quick to dismiss its message, to think it's unspiritual, perhaps. And the writer wants us to know that challenging as it is sometimes, like goads, this book is exactly what the great shepherd wants his sheep to be hearing. So there we go, that was the necessary interlude. And now our final point, final point of the weekend, comes from the final conclusion of the whole book. And it's this, live reverently, live in fear. Because all of life is significant. Here we go, verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. He's giving you a clue, you know, I'm about to say something significant. Here's the conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Why? Keep going, verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Uh, We've seen already, even in today's verses, chapter 11, verse 9, this teaching about judgment. And can I say that the reality of judgment is wonderful, wonderful news. Do you remember we began chapter 1, verse 3 with that question, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Solomon's been opening our eyes the fact, to the fact that God has deliberately frustrated this life. We cannot make a lasting difference through building sandcastles. Um, you know, the tide is going to come in. And Solomon has been urging us to discover, hasn't he, that life is about gifts more than gain. We need to stop obsessing with the question, where's the gain, where's the gain, and start receiving his gifts in thankfulness. And yet, in addition to that message, the the attitude-shifting message, 
Solomon has also been underlining the wonderful news that although we cannot produce lasting gain ourselves, wonderfully we can entrust gain to God. And this is the conclusion of the whole book, verse 14. God will bring every deed into judgment. Isn't it wonderful? Everything we do is going to have lasting significance. Ultimately, everything matters. Um, I guess once in a generation, perhaps, there'll be an Archimedes, there'll be a Marie Curie, there'll be someone who so advances um, human knowledge and understanding that they impact all of the generations after them. And we see those people, they're always bigged up, we, we learn about them. And the rest of us are desperately trying to leave behind some kind of similar legacy. Uh, something that makes our lives feel like they matter in some way beyond our death. And Solomon's been saying, don't be deluded, deluded. Trust me on this one. God has so frustrated this world that not even wisdom can bring ultimate gain in the face of death. Don't chase the wind. You cannot produce ultimate gain that way. It's not going to be ultimate. But for those who fear God, for those who entrust gain to him, we discover that because God will bring every deed into judgment, verse 14, therefore everything, everything we do matters, ultimately. What liberating news, especially having gone through the pages of Ecclesiastes. I guess um, sometimes or often when we think of judgment, we think of it very negatively. And that is entirely understandably, understandable. If we face the judgment unforgiven, uh, we are, of course, in desperate danger. Please, if that is news to you, if, if you're unsure about whether you will be safe on that final day, then please, nothing could be more urgent. Uh, do not go home from this weekend even, without talking to someone, getting clear on these issues. Nothing could matter more than being in right relationship with our God before that day. And yet for those of us who know we're forgiven, for those of us who are justified, we live under God's smile every day, the fact of judgment is now a wonderful thing. It's a liberating thing. Um, I guess we've all come across school teachers, haven't we, who didn't really care enough to properly mark their students' work. In fact, I heard about um, some children who put this to the test and uh, they were writing rude things about their teacher in the middle of an essay to see if the teacher would notice, and of course he didn't. And as soon as children work out that there's no real assessment of what they're doing, that is deeply demotivating, obviously. Of course they're going to disengage. Um, I was listening to a TED talk a while back by a professor of psychology. He was saying that this sense that there is no ultimate assessment, no ultimate, and therefore no ultimate meaning in life, he says is what accounts for why so many in our society plunge into depression. He, d- he said it's just so demoralising. And into that context, Solomon assures us that everything matters. This is such a practical doctrine for us day to day. Um, and I can say from my own experience how often I kind of lean into this. I take comfort from the fact that even if others don't see what we're doing or perhaps don't appreciate what we're doing, I'm sure that happens to us often, God always sees it. And as Jesus says in the parable of the tenants, God will one day say, well done, 
Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And so Solomon's call on us is to fear God. To live lives every day which reverence him in everything that we do. We thought at the beginning, didn't we, about um, given the chaotic world we live in, there is a big temptation in us to live defensively, cautiously, anxiously, do everything we can just to cotton wool ourselves, to bury our talents in a field, as Jesus would put it in Matthew 25. And wonderfully, in these verses we see Solomon has shown us a much better way. And the two headings we've been thinking about, they seem opposites, don't they? But the liberating news for us is that reverence for God and reveling in life are not opposites for the believer. They should always go together for the Christian. And whilst there's no question we all live the entire length of our lives, you know, we all live until our dying day, Solomon's call to us in this book is to make sure we live the entire width of our lives. To make sure we live lives of joyful and exuberant worship, not defensively. I'm going to pause there and pray. And then there will be a chance if for Q&A, or is it straight to communion? Straight to communion. Let me close this in a breath. <coughs> Our Father, we thank you for this challenging book of the Bible. Thank you that it so exposes some of the things we wrongfully assume about uh, this world. It really is truly broken, not half broken. And yet we thank you that it doesn't leave us there. And it tells us that we are to live joyfully and reverently and positively in the midst of the mess. Father, we can only do that because we know there is one who will bring everything into account. We know there is one who makes all things beautiful in their time. Uh, There is one who can be trusted. Father, we as Christian believers, we know that even more wonderfully than Solomon could have. Thank you for what we're hearing yesterday from Romans 8.28. Uh, that all things work for good for those who love you. And and Father, we never need doubt. Uh, We look at the cross and we see the worst possible chaos and evil turned into the highest possible good. And Father, we trust that you're an expert in these things. And so we can live our lives confident in your final putting right. Help us to to apply this into our own hearts. not always looking, uh, resting on today's being seen, knowing that we will one day be acknowledged. And help us not to live so defensively, to get to the end of our life having just protected ourselves and never really uh, got our gifts out and used them. Father, please help us to live uh, productively and fruitfully for you, we pray. Amen. Amen.